We are in week two of our First Things First uh, preaching series. It's kind of weird to say First Things First and then preach more than one thing about it, but I, that's what we're going to do, okay? Uh, thank you for being a part of this. I know that we've got a lot of folks who are watching online and watching from home. I had a lot of them already call and text me this morning saying that they weren't going to be able to get out, and so that's okay. Uh, here's what I'm going to challenge you to do. Last week, we introduced this uh, series, and we talked about day one. Uh, first things first, we're looking at all the firsts in Scripture, and, uh, and we looked at control over chaos. We talked about darkness and light, and so if you weren't here last week or if you didn't watch last week, uh, I would encourage you to go back and kind of re-watch that sermon so that kind of lays some foundation for what we're going to talk about for the next couple of weeks. And we talk about why firsts are so important, right? We remember firsts. You remember your first car, whether it was good or it was bad, you still remember it. You remember your first job. You remember the first time you went out with your wife on, your on a date, right? You remember your first date with your spouse. You remember the first kiss with them, hopefully. You remember the first time you held their hand. You remember all these firsts, right? You remember uh, how, how great and wonderful, and you kind of even sometimes embellish that first car, right? Or maybe that first job and all the freedom that you had with all the first paycheck that you got. Well, firsts are important. They're, they're significant. I think that they, they sometimes set the tone for what happens next. And you can deny this if you want to, but I know this because some of you say, well, I'm going to start eating healthier or I'm going to start working out the first of next week. Or the first of this next month, and we do this at New Year all the time because it's the first of the year and we're going to get back on, on, on track with all those things, but we think that something that happens at the first will carry us all the way through. And, and what we're going to read today, I believe, is that there's one thing that happened first that we've been carrying with us for a very, very long time, and that is the first sin. And so as we look through first things first and the things that happen in the scripture as we, as we begin to see these things unfold, uh, we looked at day one, we looked at the first day. Uh, well, I think today we need to look at the first sin. So it's hard to get out of Genesis when you're talking about first things. We're going to be in it one more week uh, this week. So Genesis chapter three, if you've got your Bible, let's go there because this is a very familiar passage of scripture. Something you've probably read a number of different times, you could probably almost uh, summarize fairly well and get most of the details correct. But what I hope today is I hope you will hear it and maybe even feel it in a deeper way this morning. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 says this, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Now at this point in, in, the, in the narrative of creation and all the things that have happened, obviously we've got uh, the seven creative or the six creative days, the day of rest, man and woman. Uh, chapter two gives us a, a kind of a, a, a different oversight of what happened in chapter one. God tells us that uh, he placed man in the garden to watch over it and he gave him an instruction. Matter of fact, let's read it. If you've got your Bible, go back one chapter to Genesis chapter two. And this is the instruction that God uh, gave to Adam. Chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree that is in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. At this moment, when the serpent approaches Eve, everything's fine. 
Everything is as perfect condition as it was supposed to be. Man and woman are living in the garden. We don't know how long they had been there. We don't know how short of a time that they had been there. But we know that everything in the world was just as God wanted it. And then there's a trick that the enemy begins to implement that I believe he still uses today. I've put it in your notes as the progression of deception. And I know that's kind of big words and they kind of rhyme, but if you'll just go with me, I've got four different progressive levels that the enemy uses in our life to allow sin to develop and enter into something that's not supposed to be there. So the first step that the enemy uses is to get us to question what God says. Do you notice what the serpent said to Eve? Did God really say that you're not supposed to eat from any tree in the garden? Like surely, surely you misheard or maybe, maybe he didn't mean it or maybe it wasn't as restrictive as you want it to be. And we still, I think, fight this fight today. We want to choose scripture to fit our needs. And we, oh no, Matt, we're good Christian people. We're here on Sunday morning. We would never do that. But let's just take, for example, how many of you in here, you don't have to raise your hand because that would be embarrassing. How many of you in here have somebody in your life that you're just done with? You're just, you're just over it. They've, they've hurt you. Maybe they've, they've offended you. Maybe they've, they've talked about you or they've deliberately gone out of their way to, to, to cause you harm or maybe even cause one of your kids or your spouse or somebody that you love harm. And you're just like, you know what? I don't even care anymore. They can live their life. I'm going to live my life. I don't want nothing to do with them. They don't want nothing to do with me. I'm justified by this feeling because I have been wronged. Forgiveness? No, I'm not even worried about that. We're not even messing with them anymore. But did God really say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 through 15, if you forgive men when they sin against you, that your heavenly Father will forgive you? And if you do not forgive men their sin, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sin? Did he really say that? Did he really say that if someone has something against you that you should essentially leave church, go make that right with that person and then come back to church and offer your offering? Did God really say that? He did in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 through 24. Listen, we can keep going. Marriage is hard, right? Marriage is hard and culture says if, if it's hard, just split up. It doesn't matter, right? Divide your assets, half your debt, and then just go on and you get a fresh start. But did God really say in Malachi chapter 2 verse 16, I hate divorce? Did God really say in Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, for this reason man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh? God said that in Genesis. Jesus said it again in Matthew 19, and Paul wrote it down again in Ephesians chapter 5. It's pretty important. It's in there three different times. Did God really say that? Yeah, he did. And just because it goes against what you want for the situation doesn't change what God said. Just because it doesn't fit your narrative doesn't change what God said. I keep going. Did God really say that we're robbing him when we don't give our tithe obediently? Yes, he did. Did God really say that if we want to be the greatest, we have to be the servant to all? Yes, he did. Did God really say that in the end, many will cry out, Lord, Lord, and he will say to them, I did not know you. Yes, he did. And so we have to stop living in a world where we question what God says because it doesn't make us feel good on the inside. 
When we begin to question what God said, the enemy has already won. He's already won. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean you can't question it. When God says it, it is true. That's the first thing the enemy wants us to do is question what God says. Look at the second thing. In his progression of deception, he gets you to manipulate what God says. Do you notice what he did in that situation? He said, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what he said. Right? He, he said you can eat of any tree except for one tree. I wrote down in my notes, we are no more like Satan himself than when we manipulate the word of God to fit our agenda. That's a hard statement to say. We are no more like Satan himself than when we manipulate the word of God to fit our agenda. We are following in his footsteps. Do you think that the enemy didn't know what God said? Of course he did. Of course he knew it. He was setting a trap. Look what, look what he did. We don't have time to turn to this because I've got a lot more. Uh, Matthew uh, chapter 4, when Jesus uh, is just about to start his ministry, he goes into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. At the end of that, when Jesus is physically exhausted, the, the enemy shows up and he begins to tempt him. You guys remember this story. The enemy says, if you'll turn those stones into bread, if you're really God, and Jesus quotes scripture to him. And he says, for man does not live on bread alone but on the very word of God and so Satan takes that opportunity and he then quotes scripture back to Jesus and he says this if you really are the son of God throw yourself down for it's written he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that they will not strike your foot against the stone that's Psalm 91 Jesus responds in like manner with scripture again. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do you think that the enemy doesn't know scripture? He does. He knows it, he knows it better than you. He knows it better than all of us. And he's trying to manipulate it and twist it and change it. Because here's how we know it. In our scenario, I talked about earlier about somebody who uh, is, we're upset with or whatever. Somebody does something to us is the first Bible verse that we quote Pray for your enemies and love those who persecute you? No, we don't quote that one. What do we quote? Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, right? Because they did it to me, I'm gonna do it to them. It's biblical, right? You can take it all the way back. My grandma showed me that verse in the Bible because we think we're justifying it by manipulating what that scripture says. What about people who you just don't wanna deal with? Do you, do you quote Scripture that says that you're to love your neighbor as yourself or do you go to Matthew chapter 7 verse 6, do not cast the pearls before the swine. And I'll let you in on a secret, you're not the pearl and they're not the swine. You're manipulating scripture. And I know that's dumb and a little silly but the sad reality is, is that we do this. We take scripture and we make it say what we want it to say. So that it fits our situation, our agenda, and our excuse, or to justify our behavior. And hear me, when you manipulate scripture like this, you are hand in hand with the enemy himself. We cannot do that. We cannot take things out of context to make them fit our situation 
and make us feel better about how we feel or about what we want or about what's happening in our world. We have to read it as it is. Thankfully, Eve straightens him out, right? The serpent out, kind of. Go back to our original verse, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals. He said, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. So let's focus on what she did right first, and then we'll talk about that little clause. She corrected him, right? We, we can eat from the trees in the garden. That's not what he said. He said, don't eat from the tree. We're assuming that the tree of knowledge and of good and evil is in the middle of the garden. We're all okay with that. Everybody says, all right, she's, she's just pointing out geographically where it's located. We're good. But then she adds this little extra clause. It wasn't really what God said. You must not touch it. If you go back to Genesis 2, that's not what God said. You must not touch it. He didn't say that. So the question is, why did Eve add that? And honestly, I wrestled with this for quite some time. Why did she add this? And then so I do what I do. I, I went to commentaries. I went to guys who are smarter than me and people who have written years and years ago to find out what they say about it. And surprisingly, there's nothing. There's very little written about this little clause that she added. I think because most of them would say the same thing we'd say. Well, I don't know why she said that. <laughs> if you don't know why, then you're not going to write a commentary about why. Here's one that I found that I thought was so, so good. Either Eve didn't fully understand the command, she misremembered it, or she intentionally misquoted it in an effort to make it more emphatic. Instead of bolstering her willingness to obey, this addition to the words of God actually makes Satan's strategy more effective. In the context of this conversation, her error makes God appear even more restrictive than he is. The serpent will quickly zero in on the issue of God's character, his honesty, and his fairness. In other words, she didn't have to add, don't touch it, because the command of God was good enough on its own. So, in our first things first, is this the first sin? If you're asking me as your pastor, I would say, I don't think it is. I think this is Eve either putting her own emphasis on it or adding to the severity of how she saw it, right? I'm not even going to touch it. And, and maybe she misspoke or maybe she missaid, you know, he said not to touch it, but really that's how me and Adam have been dealing with it. We're just not even going to go around it. We're not even going to touch it. I, I don't think so. But what I do think is happening is Eve is becoming to succumb to the progression of, of deception. I think she's kind of beginning to see and, and bend into the will of it because look what happens next. Look at verse four, chapter three. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So first, the enemy gets us to question God's word. Then he gets us to manipulate God's word. And the third step in this progression of deception is he gets you to deny what God says. I mean, this is a full-on outright denial 
of what God said. God said, you eat this, you will surely die. That's the exact phrase that God said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Then Satan says, no, 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 you will not surely die, Genesis 3, 4. This is a direct denial of God's word, and that church is a big deal. Because if, if we begin to just outright deny the word of God, then where does it stop? Where do we stop in that process? Love your neighbor as yourself. No, we don't do that. No, that, that's a, that's, we're not going to do that one. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each one of you should learn to control his body in a way that is holy and honorable. No, we don't have to do that either. Scratch that verse from Scripture. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. No, don't do that either. We'll just scratch that one out. We're going to deny that one. For God so loved the world. No, he didn't. Well, yeah, but we know he didn't. No, he didn't. Because now we get to say no. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No, we'll, we'll say that there's other ways. You can be good enough. You can work your way. We don't have to listen to what Jesus said because we can deny the word of God. And you'd say, Matt, we'd never do that. We would never do that, but we do. We, we live and we make decisions and we have relationships and we dance around sin like God never spoke anything about how to do all those things better and how to get rid of the sin in our life. We claim God's word when it's easy and we ignore it when culture or when it's against our own desire or when it's what, against what we want or we want to even hear. We ignore it. We have to stop denying the word of God. What he says is truth. What he says is right. And what he says, whether we like it or not, does not change. So, oh, well, this is what he meant then. But now, surely, if he had another opportunity to re-say it, he would say something else. No. What he says is what he says, and it doesn't change. So my, we begin to question what God says. We begin to manipulate what God says. We begin to deny what God says. And then the last thing, the enemy gets us to challenge God's character. This is, I think, a big one because look what he does. He says, God knows if you eat of this, then you'll be like him. That's what he's telling Eve. God knows if you eat this, then you'll be like him. In other words, there's something better, but he's not letting you have it. God's trying to keep you down. He doesn't, he doesn't want what's best for you. In other words, you know better. You know what you want. You know what would be best. And I know that we are in church, and I've said it a few different times, but can we just lose the facade and act like we don't do the same thing here as well? Your temptation may not be to be like God, right? That's, I mean, we don't, I don't know that we struggle with that. But you've questioned and you've wondered and you've thought things like, does he even care? Does he even know what I'm going through? If only he would do this or he would do that, then things would be so much better because I know what's best for me in my life. And in that train of thought, you're questioning the character of God. God, who is all-knowing and all-loving and all-present and all-good. 
God who, who breathes stars into existence and sustains all things at all time, who loves you so much that his plan for you to have right relationship with him is for his son to die in your place. And who even through our own disobedience continues to try to have right relationship with us and to draw near to us. Surely you know better than him. This is the same battle that Job fought through the whole book of Job. If you read that, you know what all fell apart in Job's life. And Job begins to ask all these questions about why God, why this, why that, why that. And finally, God had enough. And he steps to the plate and he says, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Let him, let him question me and I will question him. And then God goes on this four chapter tirade of where were you? Where were you when I placed the stars in the heavens? Where were you when I told the seas you could only go that far? Surely you know these things. Surely you comprehend. At the end of all of it, Job says, I despise myself. I repent and set in dust and ashes. For surely I spoke of things that are too grand for me to know. How dare we question God's character? as if we would know better for ourselves. And most of us, again, would say, Matt, we don't do that. And 99% of the time, I believe you're right. We would not. But here's, and this is a horrible analogy, but just go with me. You've heard the old saying, if you put a frog into boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you put a frog into a pot of water and slowly bring it to a boil, it'll boil to death. And that's what the progression of deception does to us. It slowly begins to boil. Slowly begins to bring sin to the surface. No matter what your struggle is. If you were thrown in the middle of that situation, most of you would just be so shell-shocked. You'd be like, I don't want anything to do with this. And you turn and run away, right? No matter what it is. If your struggle is anger, right, it's, it's going to be a series of little things, things that, that don't matter but still frustrate you, things that just kind of get underneath your skin. And then finally, when you're at your breaking point, you're going to explode on somebody who didn't deserve that. And your anger is going to just going to bubble to the surface. If your struggle is alcohol, you're not going to wake up in a distillery. You're not, Right? What you're going to do is there'll be one here and one there, six pack here. It's not a big deal. Then there'll be a party or the guys will get together or there'll be a golf tournament. Hello? And the next thing you know, you've humiliated yourself publicly or worse, you've hurt someone or someone else because that's just slowly boiling one little thing at a time. I could keep going. Money management. It's one sale, one purchase, one, one little splurge. If your struggle is pornography, it's one extended glance, one internet search, one scene that you don't need to watch. If it's prescription medication, it's one family gathering, one more holiday. Just let me take something to get through that. It's one bad headache. It's just one more through the day moment. If it's flirtatious behavior, it's one flirty joke one innocent touch it's one fleeting thought and slowly slowly you're boiling because he's getting you to question 
and to manipulate and to deny and to challenge God's character. And what we immediately do through all of that is we, we push back and we say, God, why are you tempting me with all this? James chapter 1 says very emphatically, when tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't you blame God for boiling in water that you're setting in. We put ourselves in those situations. We allow these little things to pile and to pile and to drag us deeper and the deeper. And the next thing we know, we're finally presented with the sin that the enemy knows we struggle with the most. You guys know the rest of the story. Eve succumbs to the temptation and eats. Genesis chapter three, verse six, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave them to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Do you see, the, do you see how it worked? It was good for food. She questions God's word. Well, why couldn't she eat it? Pleasing to the eye, manipulating what God said. If it looks good, it must be good. Gaining wisdom, challenging God's character. Why wouldn't he want me to have this? What's he hiding? Why I want the wisdom that God has. And so she took some of it and ate it, completely denying what God said to do. And before we start blaming Eve, Adam was there too. He could have stopped this at any moment and he didn't. I don't have time to get into all the ramifications of Adam's presence there. But in this moment, she took some and ate it. We have the first sin. All because we questioned, we manipulated, we denied, and we challenged God and who we knew God to be. Church, I can promise you, the sin patterns in your life, the things that you're struggling with, is all because you are bending to this progression of deception. And you know that James says it's true, like when sin gives birth, it gives birth to death, that nothing good's going to come from this. You know that, that you've even probably even witnessed firsthand some of the, the, the destruction that this sin has brought in your life. You experience the abandonment of people who, who love you and who you love. You felt isolated and alone. You've been hurt by yourself or you've hurt other people and maybe you've even betrayed love that's been given to you. You know nothing good's going to come from this. But you just keep sitting in boiling water. And if it's you, man, join the crowd. If it's you, then hear this next part because I think this is so important for us to know. This is really my last thought. I'm, well, I'm getting through this a little faster than I thought. Because sin entered, because there was a first sin, God, who loves us even in our sin, provided a way for us to still have right relationship with him. We, we know this now as the sacrificial system, okay? If you read your Bible it, from the Old Testament all the way even into the New Testament, uh, they are in the process, Jews are in the process of sacrificing animals to God. When Jesus lived and walked 
Uh, The temple was still there and sacrifices were still being made. When Paul wrote in the 60s, uh, the the temple was still there, sacrifices were still being made. The only gospel writer that wrote on the backside of the temple being destroyed was John. John lived the longest. He wrote in the latter part of his years. He died in 90. And so we know that in some of John's writings, the temple was already gone. And so we have everything in the New Testament where people were still making sacrifice because that's the only way they could have right relationship with God. So in keeping with our first things first, I thought, okay, we just read about the first sin. What was the first sacrifice? Many of you would probably immediately go to Cain and Abel, right? This is Adam and Eve's sons. You guys know this story that, uh, that Cain brought the first fruits of the soil for an offering to God, but Abel brought the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. In other words, there was an animal that he uh, sacrificed and brought that to God. There's a whole other side story to that about how Cain and Abel got mad at each other and all that. We're not getting into all that today. But there, an animal had to be offered. But if, if we read, that wasn't the first sacrifice. If we go back to Genesis chapter 3, and I'll, I'm going to paraphrase this to save time because we don't have time to read all of this. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. Verse 7, uh, their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. All right, side note, the end of chapter 2, the Bible says they were naked and felt no shame. Uh, chapter 3 enters, sin enters, and uh, they immediately felt shame. They hid themselves from each other. This is a big deal that sin does. Sin brings shame every time. Eight, verses 8 through 13 in chapter 3, God comes along, Adam and Eve hide, and God asks them, hey, why are you hiding? And they responded, because we're naked. And the greatest question in the Bible, God says, who told you you were naked? Right? That's, a, that's a wonderful question. And so they had to kind of confess about what had all happened. Adam blames Eve, this woman you put here with me, she gave me this fruit and I ate it. This is a blame game that sin brings along. We blame other people for our own actions. I don't have time to get into all that. Verse 14 through 20, God gives the curses because sin entered. The earth was cursed, the serpent was cursed, Eve was cursed with pain and desire, and Adam was cursed with work and death. And then, tucked away, almost... You could just read it a thousand times and never even think about it. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Garments of skin is animal hide. This is the first sacrifice. The only way to get animal hide is to kill an animal. A sacrifice to atone for the first sin. To cover Adam and Eve and to cover their sin. This sacrificial system was established by God. Lord, it says the Lord God made garments of skin. This is no doubt him showing Adam and Eve what is going to be required for right relationship now that sin had entered the picture. We have the first sin. And now we have the first sacrifice. And it's incredible. I was reading that and I'm going, this is it. This, this is the first sacrifice. And as great as that is, it's insufficient. 
I mean, if you go through the Old Testament, Isaiah, David, Hosea, Amos, Jeremiah, all speak about sacrifice being insufficient. How many bulls and goats and lambs do you offer God for sin that you committed against him? There's never going to be enough. And, and how do we rank that sin? How do we say that I disobeyed God the first time and so that just offered me a lamb, but how, now I did this the 15th time. Do I offer 15? There's never enough. Obviously, we don't do this anymore. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. That kind of shut down sacrificial system as we know it. But why do we, why do we not go back to it? Don't, don't miss this. Because finally, there was one sacrifice that was sufficient for all. When Jesus died on the cross, he accomplished the only sacrifice that was needed. Now, because humans owed a debt to a divine God. And, and the only way for a human to be reconciled to God is for a human to die. That's why Jesus was 100% man. But the only way we could ever reconcile a divine debt is for a divine price to be paid for that debt. That's why Jesus was 100% God. So we needed a divine human to pay a divine debt. That's why Jesus is the only person who could ever be the sacrifice that we needed for 100% God, 100% man, paying the price on each side for what was owed to God for our sin. So if you've been trying to earn your way out of sin behavior, or if you've been trying to work your way back to God by letting your good kind of outweigh your bad, or being a good person, and maybe giving and serving and leading, or any other thing that you've been doing, you've just been offering insufficient sacrifices. That's all you've been doing when all along the perfect sacrifice has already been made and our only response to that sacrifice is that we are to accept the gift of salvation as made by the one who loves you enough to die in your place. That's all we have to do. And we complicate it. And we make it so much harder. And Jesus says, listen, everything that you need for right relationship with God is in me. All you have to do is just repent and believe in my name. Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no man could boast. Paul also said, God demonstrates his own love for this, us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's got to come through me. And he also said, God loved the world so much that he sent his son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. If you hear nothing today, hear this, and this is my last point. Sin is present. A sacrifice has been made. And we are simply called to repent and believe. We repent of the sin that we commit. We come and say, God, we know that we are not good enough on our own, and we know that we have failed. God, Jesus' sacrifice was enough to cover my failures. Jesus' sacrifice was enough 
to forgive me. And so I confess my sin and I accept salvation that comes in his name. It's easy as it is. The first sin, monumental. Matter of fact, most, if you read through your New Testament, you're going to hear references to the first Adam. Talking about how sin came through the first Adam and then and the second Adam, which was Jesus, how forgiveness came through him. One came from all, condemnation for all, and forgiveness came from the other for all. So we read in Scripture the first sin. It seems heavy. It seems long-lasting. Then we read about the first sacrifice, and we go, okay, this is how God established it. But it was made perfect in Christ. I think for a lot of us, we're stuck in this progression of deception. And some of us just need to come underneath that sacrifice that's already been made and saying, God, I I can't get out of this on my own. I need help and I need him. I'm not going to deny. I'm not going to question you. I'm not uh, going to challenge your character. I'm not going to do any of these things. I'm just going to come and I'm just going to obey what you have. Some of you, you read like, okay, I'm stuck on number two. <laughs> or I'm stuck on, I'm right now, I'm, I'm, I'm in the middle of number four. And know, know this, you don't have to work your way all the way until you sin. It's not like, oh, I'm only at level one, I'm good. That's not it. Every aspect of that leads to sin. That's the progression he used with Eve. I believe he uses it with us as well. Sometimes we jump steps, we jump levels of that. But it all ends in sin and it all ends in death. And Jesus says, I have life. Why would we not run to that life? Just stand with me and bow your head as TJ comes. We're going to have just an opportunity for uh, you to respond to the truth of what God has said today. That, that maybe you just say, you know what, God, I'm, I'm in the middle of this sin pattern and I don't know how to get out. Maybe you're saying, I need to understand that sacrifice on a very real and personal and deep level. Help me, walk me through this. I'd love to do that. If you just say, I just need somebody to pray for me. I'd love to do that. Don't miss this opportunity. Tell you what, let's do this. Let's, let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. Nobody's looking around and... and I don't do this often, but I just feel like I should today. If you're in that sin pattern and you just want somebody to pray for you, the only two people who are looking right now is me and TJ. And you say, I just, Matt, will will you just pray for me this week? Will you just raise your hand? Man, I'll do it. I'd love to. Yeah. There, there. Okay good listen life is hard sometimes we're in the middle of some really hard things right now and sometimes we make it even harder by our own disobedience so man I'll be praying if you need to come to this altar in the next few moments you're welcome to do that if you need to ask questions or join the church or anything else this is your opportunity to respond to what God has for you first things first don't miss the sacrifice that was made for you that is sufficient for all time Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for today. We thank you for the truth of your word and a familiar story that we've heard a thousand times. But God, maybe today it hit a little different. Maybe today 
You broke through some barriers and we've seen some things that we're struggling with, some things that we need to get straight, some things that we need to get under control. God, I, I pray that everyone here understands we can't do this on our own and that we need you. And so, Father, help us to step out of the progression. Help us to open our eyes to the deception around us and help us see where we are and what we're doing and what you've called us to. And Father, help us repent and move away. God, help us to run to you. Take shelter under the sacrifice that you have made for us. God, if there's somebody here this morning that doesn't understand who Jesus is and why he would die for us, God, I pray that they'd ask questions. God, if there's somebody here that just says, you know what, I just need to get, I need to get back on track. God, there's hands up. I, God, I pray for them. God, help them to see that you are the only way that anything works. Father, be honest with us as we are honest with you in these next few moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray.